It's my pleasure today to continue in our series called The Habits of Happiness. And uh, we're going to take a look at Philippians chapter 2 today, the first 11 verses. An amazing passage together as we continue the series of talking our way verse by verse through this great book. If you want to turn there in your devices or in your hard copies of your Bibles, you might want to read the passage along in a couple of minutes on the screen. But I would encourage you to jot some notes today. The reason that ushers pass out uh, note cards for you to jot notes is for you to jot notes. And for those of you that are note jotters, you know that if you listen to me talk today, you're going to remember about 2% of what I say. I know some of you are hoping that that's the case. Be kind, be kind. If you actually write it down, you're upping it to 20, 25%. If you actually listen to me and write it down and go do it, it'll be about a 90% retention. Isn't that the point? And so I encourage you to jot some notes today. Some of you, I know your minds are like steel traps, however. And Ed, you are going to have absolute recall of everything. Cindy, you're going to ask him about it this week, especially when you see him not behaving the way I'm going to talk today, okay? (laughs) Built-in accountability is a wonderful thing. Hey, if you were to go to a mall and ask people, what's the secret of happiness? My guess is that many people would say, well, grow up and uh, get an education and get married, somewhere along the line, get a good job, make a lot of money, and then retire. Well, I know a lot of people that have done that, and they're not happy. Any of you with me on that? Today, as we take a look at the Bible and what God says about the pathway to happiness, I'm going to tell you that there's a key today that wouldn't be in their wildest imagination in a thousand years. The Bible says the key to happiness is the pathway of humility. Yeah. One of the greatest causes of unhappiness is conflict. Would you agree with me there? Yeah, if things are not happy in relationships, life is not happy. We can have all of the other stuff. But if there's conflict, we are not happy. And the pathway to happiness is to have a life that has less conflict, that has harmony. And what we discover in the passage today is that the way to harmony is the pathway of humility. So the path to happiness is a path of humility. The Bible tells us that the habit of humility is what reduces conflict in our life. And when conflict is reduced, then humility is always there. So I'm going to invite you to Take a look, take a listen with me at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And as you listen, see if you can pick up the major points and themes. First, you'll hear four kinds of harmony. Then you'll hear four keys to humility. And then we wrap it all up today as we receive communion by looking at three ways that Jesus modeled both. This is what it says. Therefore... If any of you have any encouragement from being with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking out to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
in your relationships with one another, have, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow, that is a powerful passage. Let's just take a look at a little slice through it today as it talks about how humility leads to harmony and harmony leads to happiness. And first Paul says to us, there's God's model for all good relationships. Let's take a look at four kinds of harmony. What makes a great relationship? In verse two, Paul says this, I want you to make my joy complete. In other words, he says, I want you to be happy and I want to be happy because of what you're doing by how is joy made complete? What's the pathway to happiness? By, I quote, by having the same mind, by sharing the same love, by being united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Here's the four kinds of intimacy that God wants for you to have in your marriage, if you're married. These are the four kinds of harmony that God wants for you to have in every relationship. Ask yourself the question, how would the relationship look and feel if we were on the same page in God's design? If we had first the same mind, that's mental harmony. How about if we shared the same love? Emotional harmony. Or being united in spirit. Spiritual harmony. What would it be like if we were intent on one purpose? Had directional harmony. Wow. Do you feel the conflict begin to just bleed and drain out of the relationship? As this kind of harmony comes in? What would it look like in your school or your place of work or in your neighborhood if people shared together that kind of harmony? Yesterday, Ann and I received an email from one of the homeowners, one of our neighbors. Our little homeowners association has 28 units, so roughly we have about 27 neighbors. And, and last week, one of our neighbors unilaterally decided to try to improve our relationship with the rest of our Renko Station community. There's four different homeowners associations. And so he wrote a nice email to all of us saying, I have just decided that I'm going to start attending their meetings. I've reached out. I have liaisons. And I'm going to bring back to our homeowners monthly uh, association meeting. I'm going to bring back information. He said, I just thought it would be wise for us living all in the same community with similar interests if one of us reached out and we had a little more knowledge and information and relationship with the other homeowners associations. Does that sound good? Good to you? Yeah. That's not a trick question, folks. Yeah. That sounds very good. Does that sound good to you? Yeah. I think it sounds like being on the same page, don't you? Maybe we'd actually get to know and like each other. Well, I could smell the smoke coming through my uh, computer before I read the fire. 
on a follow-up email reply to all from another one of the neighbors. Who do you think you are unilaterally deciding to make nice with the rest of the neighborhood? Don't you know that we've been involved in a lawsuit in a few years ago and we still have ill feelings about how that turned out? And I don't want, who do you think you are doing that? I'm not ready to play nice. Oh man, it was hot. Boom. Now, guess which one of those neighbors, I don't know either of them well. Guess which one of them had a happier weekend? Just guess. Guess who's more fun to live with this weekend? Just guess. That's what Paul says. If you want to make my joy complete, if you want to make me happy, folks, get on the same page. Wow. Wouldn't your major relationships be fundamentally changed this week if you got on the same page? That's exactly what it says. Paul says, I want to be joyful. I want you to be joyful. I want you to have mental and emotional and spiritual and directional harmony. I want you to move in a way that just drains the conflict out of your relationships. Because when you have harmony, you can have happiness. Now, I think most of us would say, that's a good idea with me. I'd love for some conflict to be drained out of some relationships. Any of you voting with me on that one? Uh Uh-huh. Few people have come to mind. And aren't you glad that God's word immediately tells us how to let that happen? Here we go. The second thing we learn are four keys to humility because what we've discovered that humility is the path to harmony. Harmony is what produces happiness. But we have to go back to what produces the harmony and it's humility. The first of the four habits for reducing conflict in your life is this. Never let pride be your guide. No matter what the relationship is, Don't follow the leadership of pride. Why? Because, folks, pride is the root of every sin. It got Satan kicked out of heaven. It got Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And it will get you separated from God and every good person in your life. Pride is the source of conflict. And this is what we read Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 3. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or vain conceit. There are two kinds of conflict-producing attitudes in your relationships. The first one is selfish ambition, and the second one is vain conceit. Let me describe it another way. Selfish ambition is saying, it's all about me. And vain conceit is, and I'm always right. Now, Ed, you can imagine with me how well that's going to play into a harmonious relationship. It's all about me and I'm always right. You want to play with me? Probably not so well all that long. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. I love the Living Bible version. It says, don't live to make a good impression on others, period. Good advice. Not a bad verse to remember before you post something on Facebook or other social media. Yeah. This is the husband that says, I have my rights. I don't care about my wife's needs. I want mine met. The dad who says, I don't care about my kids' needs or interests. I want my needs met. It's called selfish ambition. It actually floods a relationship with conflict. Paul says, if you want to have happiness, you've got to have harmony. If you want to have harmony, you've got to have humility. Humility starts by saying, I will not let pride be my guide. Now, the flip side of this is I'll be humble. In fact, you could write, I'll be humble or I'll stumble. 
Humility is the foundation of every great marriage. It's the foundation of every good parent-child relationship. It's the foundation of every sustained and healthy friendship. It's the foundation of every healthy business group. It's the foundation of every healthy neighborhood set of relationships. Humility is the foundation. Humility brings harmony. And so the Bible says, as we read in verse 3, don't do anything from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, be humble and give more honor to others than yourself. Wow. Well, that tells me then that I'm not going to act like I know it all. I'm going to treat others with respect. And I'm not going to approach my relationships as a 50-50 deal. And if you played that game, I'll bring 50, you bring 50. That should be the perfect marriage, right? Except what happens. How come when you add up your 50 with his or hers, it never equals 100? Have you noticed that? Never equals 100. This is what Paul says. Just focus on being busy, giving the other one more honor. It's 110, 110. If both of you are focused on trying to out-honor the other one, that is a pathway toward harmony. Now, this is countercultural, folks. This goes against the grain. This is 180 degrees off of what cultural pressure teaches us. Our culture, culture tells us this. I've got to look out for number one. I've got to live life for myself. I've got to be happy. My generation grew up on, if it feels good, do it. What? Paul says the opposite of that is true. That true happiness comes from my giving attention to others on a humble path and honoring them first. Absolutely, that's what he says. <laughs> we warned you at the start of this series. It's easy to say and easy to understand and extremely difficult to do. Any of you there with me on that? Yeah. Now, humility, let's talk about it for a minute because I think it's one of the most misunderstood uh, values, Christian virtues uh, that we know. In fact, a lot of people think humility is going around being down on yourself. I'm no good. I eat worms. I'm nothing. I'm a zip. I'm a zero. Woe is me. You are great. I am nothing. No. That's false humility. Humility isn't just disparaging yourself. Humility, and notice that we pick it up here from this passage, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Get the difference? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. I'm no good. I'm a zip. I'm a zero. I don't have... No, it's thinking about other people. The more you think about other people, the more humble you are. Humility is not putting myself down. It's being busy building other people up. Great people make other people feel great. Little people belittle people. Humility says, the Bible says, be humble. And how do you do that? By giving more honor to others than yourself. Wow. And why does it make sense to do this thing? Well, God, God says that some tremendous benefits come with humility. This is going to be shocking for you. Are you ready? In the Bible... There are more promises associated with humility than anything else other than generosity. Let me say it again. In the Bible, 
There are more promises for you associated with humility than any other quality than generosity. No wonder social scientists in the last 15 years have made some amazing discoveries through rigorous scientific research. The happiest people in the world happen to serve others and be generous. No surprise. God promised the people that live that way are going to experience some amazing things. And it cuts both ways. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to, you can say it with me, the humble. Yeah. Notice the good. Notice the bad. God opposes the proud. That means that you can be absolutely right. You can be on the right course. You can have the right opinion. You can be absolutely accurate. But if you approach it from an attitude of arrogance or pride, God says, I'm going to be on the opposite side of this thing. I'll be in opposition to you. God opposes the proud, but he, what? Gives grace to the humble. What's grace? What's the ability to forgive when I don't feel like forgiving? By the way, have you ever forgiven when you felt like it? I don't. I need grace to forgive. It's the ability to go first in reconciling a damaged relationship, even when I don't feel like it. That's 100% of the time for me. It's the ability to compromise toward harmony in a situation. We need grace to get along. So the only way your relationships are going to grow and they're going to last and they're going to be effective is to receive God's grace. And the only way to receive his grace is a pathway of being humble. So there's, there's a third habit of humility on the pathway toward uh, happiness. And it's to learn to pay attention. I love it here in this passage. It says, if you want a happy life, you're going to have to have happier relationships. If you're going to have happier relationships, you're going to have harmony. And if you want to have harmony, you're going to have to drain out the conflict by humility. And part of humility is learning to pay attention to other people's interests. I might imagine all of you, like I have, have gone into a room People have planned for this meeting. They've had it in their calendars and their schedules. They've all made great effort to be there. And then what happens when everybody shows up in the room? Just take a look. Everybody's looking at a what? A screen, right? We have, we have learned by technology and immediate access to give our attention to screens, which means that we're a generation that needs to relearn the fine art of paying attention to people face-to-face. That's what he talks about here. It says, verse 4, don't be interested only in your own life, but be interested in what others care about too. So don't be interested in your own agenda or your own career or your own interests or your own favorite hobbies, but be interested in what other people are interested in. So dads, here's a powerful and helpful tool about raising kids Don't just be interested in what you think they should be interested in, but be interested in what they're interested in. For all of us, be interested in what others are interested in. Be caring about what they care about. Be concerned with them about what they're concerned about. And we generally find that out by asking a simple question or two. Because you see, the art of paying attention is the greatest gift you can give someone. 
When Joan pays attention, she is giving something that can never be earned back. She's giving her time. And her time is her life. And time can never be reclaimed. Joan can give you a gift. She can give you money. She can get that back. But she can never get back the precious gift of time. And when you give your attention, you're giving your life. Paul says, don't be interested only in your own life, but be interested and care for others as well. So we've learned several things. And it comes to our fourth one on our pathway of humility. And you're going to get a chuckle out of this one. Here it is. Are you ready? Ask, what would Jesus do? Some of you are going to go home and you're going to brush off those goofy bracelets. WWJD? Question mark. What would Jesus do? Did any of you grow to despise those as much as I did? Yeah. I actually think we should redeem those goofy bracelets. We should. Because it's exactly what Paul tells us to do to put the capstone, the exclamation point, on a pathway of humility. Ask the question, what would Jesus do? Here it is, what he says in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Wow. And so it sounds like a trite question, but it's exactly what he says. So if you really care about relationships, then you're going to want to lower conflict. You're going to want to raise the harmony by walking a path of humility. And in that path of humility, you're going to not want to follow pride as your guide. You're going to want to be humble. You're going to want to learn the fine art of listening. And you're going to want to ask the question, so what would Jesus do? I'm at school tomorrow. What would Jesus do in my school? I'm at work tomorrow. What would he do at work? This person seems to feel guilty. What would Jesus do to help her? My neighbor is experienced. What would Jesus do? It's exactly what he says. Let your attitude be the same as that in Christ Jesus. And if you're like me, I'm asking the question, what does that look like? And as we move toward the third and fourth final part of this talk today, and we're going to be moving into a time of receiving communion together, we're going to discover three things that Jesus did to model what it looks like to walk a path of humility. And you're going to answer your question of what did Jesus do anyway? What does it look like to act like Jesus? Well, it means three things. The first is that I don't demand what I think I deserve. Can I just say, just for the benefit of this group, I don't really like preaching all that much, primarily because I have to practice living this stuff before I talk with any degree of authenticity. And I always get tested in this stuff. I got tested in this stuff. I remembered this week, I was almost going to do a cuss thing that I think work, I don't think works here. I, I, I was... I was tested in this thing this week, and I thought, I'm an American. Bless God, I can say that. Bless God. I'm an American. Bless God. I've got my rights. It's the right and patriotic thing to do, to stand up for my rights. I mean, people died, fought, and died so that I could retain my rights. I'm going to stand up for my rights. It's the right thing to do. And then I read this wimpy thing. He didn't demand what he deserved. Wow. I told you it was easy to talk, easy to understand. It can be pretty tough to live. It's exactly what Jesus did. 
I know what my rights. I know what. I, when I order in that drive-up window, I deserve to have my order understood and perfectly delivered. And when the clerk gets it wrong, the clerk's a jerk. And I may just tell that clerk what I think of them because I have my rights and I bring that into my primary relationships. No wonder there's conflict. This is what Paul writes, verse 6 and 7. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling on to his rights as God. He emptied himself of all he had. That's what Jesus would do. Hmm. Jesus is God. Here's the big story. Jesus is God. He comes to earth. He lives as a human being. He empties himself of all of his rights. He dies on a cross. He gives it all. He didn't demand what he deserved. And he said, now go and live likewise. Hmm. This gets pretty practical. A few years ago, Ann and I pastored in Eugene. And we were about three miles from a very small, not very well-known, and way underutilized park that was right along the Willamette River. In the mornings, I would often run over to the park, and it was three miles. It was a nice halfway uh, spot, and I would stop. And I'm kind of a naturalist, so I love to worship God in nature and pray and talk and, and, and even sing. I, I go way out in nature. The park's a long way from people. I really bless humanity. I'd sing out there. It was a wonderful place for me to connect with God, except, except slovenly people in our community would go to the park, and they would litter. Litter. Can you believe that? They would litter. And I would go to my park to meet with God and have a nice experience with God. And there would be trash. And that trash would distract me. And my attitude became something like my rights. And those people, and I created wonderful scenarios of what I would do with those litter bugs. These bad people in God's big, beautiful, and green world. And it dawned on me finally that my time with God was a little bit less than it might be. You understand where I'm going with this? Yeah. And so the simple question came to mind. You don't like litter? Why don't you pick it up? Huh. So I became a litter picker-upper, and, and I didn't feel any better toward those slovenly litter bugs. But at least when the litter was out of the way, I had a running chance at a possibility of actually connecting with God. That's what he says here. You've got rights? Go ahead. You can hold your rights if you want. But you can't hold your rights and demand them and have happy relationships in life. If you want to be happy, you're going to have harmonious relationships. If you want harmonious relationships, you're going to be humble. And Jesus models humility by saying, I know my rights. I'm God. I made this thing. I'm going to come live as a human. I'm going to empty myself. Wow. Becoming the servant of all. And isn't that exactly the opposite value system of our culture? That says if you want to be great, measure that in the number of reports you have under you. The more people serving you, the greater you are. Jesus stands in the middle of that and says, let me turn that on its head. The more people you are serving, the greater you are. We think of Mother Teresa. It's called the Mother Teresa Principle. She went from Ireland to the place in the world where she found the people who are struggling the most in life dying beggars in Calcutta, and she became one of them. 
taking on Indian citizenship so she could identify in every way what happened to Mother Teresa. She had audience to address the U.S. Congress and the United Nations General Assembly. It is the Mother Teresa principle. It is the humility principle. God says this, the humble will be exalted. Jesus didn't demand what he deserved. Fun story I just heard this week. Uh, Rick Warren, great pastor in Southern California, tells it. He had this personal experience. He was with the CEO of Chick-fil-A. Uh, we don't get to have Chick-fil-A here for some reason. They haven't come this way, but it's a privately held company, fast food deal, and they do fun ads that some of us have seen about eat more chicken, right? And so uh, anyway, he's with the CEO, wonderful Christian family, and the two of them are in a restroom of one of the fast food competitors' restaurants. And they're washing their hands, and the CEO of Chick-fil-A, after they're one and one, takes two extra paper towels, and he wipes down all of the surface area on the sink and the counter. Hmm. And Rick said, what is that all about? And he said, you know, we train our employees to leave every place they go better than they found it. And that includes our competitors. Wow. Wow. Now, I told you that when I preach, that bothers me during the week before. I want you to know that I cleaned more restaurants. <laughs> and I got to tell you, pick where you go eat if you're going to have that practice. Because <laughs> if you're like me, you don't want to get too much like Jesus in this thing. I mean, it could really be painful. So here, here we go. So we learned that Jesus didn't demand what he deserved. He looked for ways that he could serve. And third, and finally, I do what's right, even when it's painful. Oh, it was for him. What did Jesus do? He did what was right, even when it was painful. Verse 8, we read it. It says, while living as a man. Do you think that wasn't painful enough? God, the creator, living in one of these boxes? Hmm? While living as a man, he humbled himself even more, it says, by being fully obedient to God, even when that meant his death on a cross. He did the right thing, even when it was excruciatingly painful. Wow. Hmm. Ann and I had an experience a week and a half ago, which was just astounding. We were at a pastor's conference. No, that all by itself would not be astounding. <laughs> but we were at a pastor's conference, and a woman came over, and I didn't recognize her. And, and she gave a one-sentence self-introduction, and I, we immediately knew who she was. In 29 years since we've seen each other. And she hugged us, and she held on, and she hugged and she held, and she hugged, and she held, and she said, thank you for loving me. Hmm. You've got to know the backstory. <clears throat> and in our 30, we <clears throat> came to this church. It was about the same size of Evergreen. And <clears throat> she happened to be a worship leader there. And uh, she did not like us. And she was quite public about that. And in fact, uh, we had Wednesday night services. And for the first few weeks, uh, Ann and I would stand. We actually sat on the uh, 
platform during the middle of the service. And we just asked people, uh, invited people to ask us questions, anything they wanted to say. We thought that that would be a way maybe to accelerate relationship and demonstrate on our, our part openness and willingness to be vulnerable. And that's what we thought. Did I say we were 30? Yeah, that's what, that's what we thought. Yeah, we'd never done this before. That's what we thought. It was the third Wednesday night that we were there. And when we asked for questions, she stood. She'd finished leading worship. She stood about halfway back where she was seated in the auditorium. And she stood up and she said, this is not a question. This is just a statement. When are the two of you going to figure out that none of us wants you here and we wish you would go back where you came from? And she sat down. This is the worship leader. Yeah. So could you tell that there wasn't tremendous harmony? Uh, all four of those levels we were not exactly on the same page. And we continued to invite her to lead worship for the first few months. Hmm. Well, it was finally time for an intervention because that story that I told you about the third week we were there did not improve. In fact, things got worse, obviously having to be intervened with. And I now, as pastor, know exactly how to deal with this thing. And I... The first image that came to mind was Jesus with a whip going through the temple courts and taking care of business. Yeah. Hunting season finally came for Jesus. I love that. Fall had finally come in the great Northwest and he took the weapon out and Jesus took care of business. Now, um, we were 30. I think I mentioned that. And we hired a really, really old guy to be the associate pastor, someone who was seasoned and aged. He was 42 years old. <laughs> Name of Stan. Love Stan. And so I'm telling Stan, and we're talking to Stan. We're giving Stan the, the game plan here. We're going to be on the same page. We're going to take care of business here. And, and he looked at that and he said, that would be a very interesting approach. He said, I think, I think we could do that. That's what Stan said. Very interesting. He said, let me suggest an alternative or two. Hmm. Well, let me tell you what we did. We went with Stan's plan. We invited her and her husband to come and they came into the office and Invited them to sit down in comfortable chairs. We asked them if they would like anything to eat or drink, and we gave them something to drink. And then we had a bouquet of flowers for her. And we gave her the bouquet of flowers. And then we had developed things that we were grateful for about her. Stan's list was quite long. Mine was very short. <laughs> we put the two together. It was respectable. And we told her, specifically activities, behaviors, qualities in her life, motivations that were commendable, that we were grateful for. And then Stan's plan, not mine. We got on our knees. They're in comfortable chairs. We're on our knees. And we asked for forgiveness and we stated specific things that we had done or said or didn't do that could have done that could have well contributed to the conflict in the relationship. And on our knees, we asked her to forgive us. Hmm. Know what she did? She stood up. She threw the flowers across the room. And she laughed in her face as she stomped out the door. Hmm. 29 years later, 10 years ago today, she comes up at a pastor's conference she gives a one-sentence introduction, and she hugs, and she holds, and she hugs, and she holds. And she says, thank you for loving me. Hmm. You know where she is this morning? She's leading worship with Pastor Mark Shaw. 
Former pastor here at Evergreen. Over across the river and battleground, Four Square Church there. She and Pastor Mark meet together every week and they plan worship and they're leading a wonderful worship experience today. Hmm. She found her way forward. I'm so glad Stan had the smarts to do what I didn't have the guts to do. Ask the question, what would Jesus do? As the band returns, I want you to think about what Jesus did. We're going to receive communion today. It's a reminder for us of what Jesus of what Jesus did, did for us. He did what was right even when it was painful so that we could live. We're going to take bread in one hand, a broken cracker. It represents the broken body of Jesus that was brutalized, it was blunged, it was beaten in humility so that we could be whole. We take the juice, red grape juice, reminds us of the blood of Jesus that just poured out in tears as he was praying in Gethsemane, begging his Father God, if there's any other way that this could happen. And he accepted that faith willingly in humility and blood poured out of his life until he, he finally bled out. Why do we remember such a gruesome and gory story and actually physically taste it and swallow it and chew it and feel it? Because we need to remember what Jesus did for us. He's the one that we hug and hold and hug and hold and say, thank you for loving me because Jesus is Lord. We read this in verses 9 through 11. Because of this, this being his example of humility, because of this, God exalted Jesus to the highest honor and made his name greater than every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will one day bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God. Wow. Jesus' name is greater than every other name because of the path of humility that he walked. Ever wonder why people use Jesus' name to swear? No one ever says, oh, Jared Roth. <laughs> no one ever swears by your name. You never hear people say, no, Buddha. There is something inside of us that understands that if you're going to swear an oath, that there's something unique and powerful about the name of Jesus and about the name of God. Because one day, every human who was ever created is going to bow her knee before God and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue will confess. Every person will acknowledge the truth. On that day, atheists will be there. People of every religion, people from every culture, people from every age. Vladimir Putin is going to be there. Barack Obama is going to be there. Every world leader is going to be there. You're going to be there. I'm going to be there. Kenny Rogers, Lady Gaga are going to be there. Gaga, Gaga. We're all going to be there. And you're going to be doing the same thing. You're going to be saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now here's the deal. It's not a matter of if. It is a matter of when. You can say Jesus is Lord now in 
love. Or you can wait and say Jesus is Lord then in judgment. But every wrong will be righted. Jesus is Lord. To say Jesus is Lord is the most humbling statement you will ever make. Because it says in the face of every sin, whose root is pride, where it says, I am first, I'm number one, I am Lord, I'm in control. To say Jesus is Lord, it says, I am not God. But here's the great thing. If you get used to saying Jesus is Lord now, you're going to find his power now. Not just then, but now. Jesus is Lord when you're discouraged. When you're tempted, say, Jesus is Lord. When you're worried or fearful or stressed, say, Jesus is Lord. When you're fatigued, say, Jesus is Lord. When you're lonely, Jesus is Lord. When you're grieving, Jesus is Lord. When it looks like the wrong side is winning, it's Jesus is Lord. When it looks like you're in a mess that you can never get out of, it's Jesus is Lord. When your marriage seems to be beyond fix, Jesus is Lord. When it looks like your debt is overwhelming, it's Jesus is Lord. When circumstances are piling against you, it's Jesus is Lord. When you feel like you're about to be defeated, it's Jesus is Lord. That's what is ultimately and eternally true. He is God and I am not. Jesus is Lord and you are not. And one day we will all kneel and acknowledge that together. Let's kneel in our hearts today and let's hug him and let's hold him and let's say thank you for loving me. That's the scandal of grace.